chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. This is the word of the Lord. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who will be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. So he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the word words is counted it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Have you ever made a promise? I know with when we're young, particularly when we're kids, a promise is that magical thing, right? I promise I'll never do it again. I promise I'll help you. I'll promise I won't do it next time. I promise it can be used as a bargaining chip. One we don't normally have a chance of filling. If Just don't punish me. I won't do it again. I promise. I'll clean my room tomorrow. I promise. I promise you I didn't do that thing that you clearly saw me do. We continue to make promises later in life, don't we? They may look a little different. We sign contracts. What is a contract but a promise that you're going to do a certain thing? Uh, You're married. You took marriage vows. Those were a promise that you were giving to one another, even... Getting a driver's license is a form of promise. I promise that I am going to follow these established laws so that when we come to a stop sign, I'm not going to keep going. There's a certain reliance that we have on others, don't we? Even when we get in the car. That if I'm at a green light, I can turn. Now, it's not always true. I always look both ways, even at a green light, particularly here in Pell City. (laughs) Because some people don't hold up their end of the promise. We take, we all give promises each and every day, and yet we fail too often in our promises. 
Each day we fail in the standards in which we've committed ourselves to. And we can only hope and pray that those around us are going to hold up their end of the bargain. But there's no assurance in it. There's no security in it. Paul here in our text today makes reference to a promise. I, I love the way God works. I, we've been reading through the Psalms for I don't know how long I can remember. And I've seriously at this point, I've, we got a list of Psalms. We're going through them one after another. I don't go each week and I don't read them ahead of time each week. But if you listen to our psalm this morning, what did it talk about? The promise that was given to Abraham. That's God, right? God does that and says, I'll take care of the things that you don't take care of, in essence. Paul is talking about a promise that was given to Abraham. He emphasizes how it is faith that secured what God had promised. So as we consider this this morning, and I would add this, this is our... Last, in this section where Paul has been arguing, this is the the last kind of, his last push in this section, talking about where faith comes from. How are we justified? Next week in chapter 5, we're going to say, okay, you're justified, now what? But one more time, Paul is going to drive this point home. So as we consider this today, we'll see three things. First, we're going to see the source of the promise. Second, we're going to see the hope of the promise. And third, we're going to see the fulfillment of the promise. The source of the promise, the hope of the promise, the fulfillment of the promise. One more time, Paul tells us, it is not through the keeping of the law that you receive anything. It is through faith. It is through faith that righteousness comes. This promise that was given to Abraham and to his offspring, it was not received because he did some great work. It was received because he had faith in God. This is a promise that extends not only to Abraham, but to his offspring. And there's some very basic things we consider even before we go on. When you talk about faith and law and you talk about Abraham, it's kind of interesting, right? Did Abraham have the law? No. We don't often think about that, do we? Abraham never had the Mosaic law, I should say. We'll put that in quotes. He never had the Mosaic law. That didn't come till 430 years later. And I think it's right for us to to consider the Mosaic law here because over and over again, Paul's been saying, hey, you Jewish people, you can't rely on your a connection to the Mosaic law. And in a sense, this law doesn't come in retroactively, and all of a sudden, Abraham had lived according to that law, even though he didn't know that law, and therefore he earned some sort of righteousness. This is not what Paul is talking about. But that's not even really Paul's primary argument here. What is Paul arguing for? He uses this phrase, not through the law. And once again, he's denying that through obedience, you can earn yourself some sort of justification. It was not this way for Abraham, and it was not this way for his descendants. Abraham, in our text today, in our psalm today, we got to see those descendants, didn't we? Because it didn't just talk about Abraham. It talked about 
Isaac and Joseph and all of those, for none of those did obedience to the law earn salvation. So then what was this promise all about? What was Abraham even promised? Well, he was promised, in essence, three things. He was promised countless descendants. From you will come uh, descendants. You will be the father of all nations. There will be so many people that come from you that it will outnumber the number of stars in the sky. It will outnumber the number of grains of sand on a beach. And not only will I give you descendants, but I'm going to give you a land. You will possess a land. This would be the promised land. And he said, you will be a blessing to all people. This is what was promised to Abraham. And Paul says, if faith, if the faith in these promises comes through obedience to the law, then faith is empty or nullified. This is what he says for us today. He said the promise is void in verse 14. What is he trying to to say to us here? He's saying if you try to earn these things through your obedience, then the promises will never come to pass. And once again, he's reminding us, you can't do it. It's not about what you do. Think about the language of a promise. If you were to come to me and you were to say, Daniel, I promise that I will give you $20 tomorrow. I have no control over the fact that whether you'll do that or not, do I? I can't go home and say, well, if I just mow my lawn enough or if I just do enough good things at the house, that will cause you to bring me that $20. That's not what a promise is. The sheer definition of promise is not something earned. It's not wages that are owed. That's not what a promise is. A promise is something that's saying, I will do this, and I will do it for you. Faith is not a birthright. Faith is not a wage. The practice of the law has failed to attain the desired end. If it's all about obedience, then Abraham will have no heirs. If it's all about obedience, then Abraham will have no land because no one can fully obey the law. The promise, in essence, Paul says, will never be fulfilled. If it's on man, in essence, if it's up to man to take care of it, man will fail. And in fact, he goes on to say this. The law only ever produces wrath. It cannot produce obedience. It cannot produce faith. It cannot produce the promise. All it produces is wrath. So then what's the point of what Paul's saying? He says some very confusing things here. Where, in verse 15, for the law brings wrath, 
But where there is no law, there is no transgression. What does he mean by that? Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Well, there's a sense in which the transgression is against the law. Now, every transgression is a sin, but not every sin is a transgression. Wrap your mind around that one for a second. The Gentiles who do not have the law, while they sin, they're not transgressing the law because they do not know the law. John Calvin says it this way. He who is not instructed by the written law, when he sins, is not guilty of so great a transgression as he who is knowingly breaking and transgressing the law of God. In essence, he says, if you know right from wrong and you continue to break it, that's a much greater thing than those who don't know right and wrong and still continue to break it. Once again, he's pointing to you Jews, or to the Jews, I should say, you have the law and you continue to break it and it's only producing for you wrath. The Mosaic law produces more and more wrath for people. It does not rescue them from the condemnation. It confirms it. So then if the promise does not come through law, where does the promise come through? How will the promise be fulfilled? If it's not through obedience, if it's not through the inheritance of that law, then how do they receive it? What Paul said is it is received by faith alone. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. It's about grace. It's about something that is freely given, unmerited. We still need to remember that the source of our salvation is not the law. We each and every day fail the standard that the law has set. And so we don't look to the law for hope and Yes, we, we tend to not get hung up with the Old Testament law in a sense that uh, Israel did. But in a practical sense, this is very true for us. We look to our good works. We look to our acts of charity. We look to what we do in the church. Well, I volunteer here. I volunteer there. I'm doing all these good things. We begin to look at them not so much as the result of a life lived in faith, but the cause of faith. But this is not how it works. We add nothing to the equation. The only source of the promise that is given is faith. Faith in God who made the promise. Faith in the reality that he keeps his promises. And so we look to him. He is the only hope that we have. He is the hope of the promise. The inheritance is given by the righteousness of faith. Now, you'll remember last time we looked last week, we are the heirs of Abraham. We, he is our father. And we sang, I sang the song for you, right? I am Father Abraham, or Father Abraham, he had many sons. I am one of them. We are the sons of Abraham, and because we're the sons of Abraham, we inherit the promise that was given to him. Grace, then, is the key instrument of this promise. 
God said to Abraham, you will be the father of many nations. Faith looks at the promises of God and grabs onto them and says, it's not about what I do. It's not about the different things through the week I do to, to make myself feel better. No, I hold on to the promises of God freely given. And as I do this, I am Abraham's seed. Paul says here, this comes through the one who gives life to the dead. This is verse 17. The God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Doesn't this speak to the awesome power of God? Who can give life to the dead? Now, I don't mean when I say this, who can give life to those who are just recently, like right now, dead. We have medical means by which we can resuscitate, resuscitate someone who has just died. But this is not what he's talking about. He's talking about dead, dead. In the Old Testament, uh, in the Hebrew language, they would often repeat a word to show infident, emphasis. Emphasis. So when Eve in the garden is talking to the, the serpent, she says, uh, you shall not eat of this or you will surely die, die, is what it literally says. It's an emphasis. And that's what he's talking about here. Those who are dead, dead, who are really dead, who are not getting up. There's no resuscitating them. Who can give life to those who are dead? This points to the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ. There is only one who can give life to those who are dead. He says he causes that which does not exist to exist. He comes in and changes the status of people. You who are dead in your trespasses and sin have been caused to be those who are alive in Christ. Abraham responds to all of this in faith. Think about what that means. Abraham was promised a son. Abraham and his wife Sarah were around 100 years old. Now imagine with me for a moment. If someone, let's just even go 80 or 90. Imagine if my wife, when we're in our 80s, came to me and said, hey, I'm, I'm pregnant. Could you imagine? This is what's going on here with Abraham. Hey, I know you're 100, but I'm, you're going to have a son. And Abraham can go, no, 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 no. That cannot happen. I know that cannot happen by evidence of the nature around me. I know my wife. I know her physical state. I know me. I know my physical state. God, I understand that you're giving me a promise, but it certainly cannot happen. Right? That's what we would have to say to God, right? Because God's crazy. Life does not come through those who are 100 years old. It just doesn't. Common sense gave him reason not to hope. 
But what did Abraham do? Abraham went from hope in his own senses to security in the God who had given this promise. Even as he considered his physical condition, uh, Paul here describes Abraham as being good as dead. Now, if I probably started using that uh, phrase, phrase to describe uh, the older folk in the church, I would probably get in trouble, right? You just don't walk around saying, well, you're as good as dead. But this is what the language Paul uses, and why does he use it? It's not because he's trying to be insulting. What he's trying to do is show a God who brings life to the dead. Even more than this, who brings life from those who are physically dead in the sense of, of reproduction. Paul chooses this language to show this. John Calvin says this, Let us also remember that the condition of us all is the same with Abraham. All things around us are in opposition to the promise of God. He promises immortality. We are surrounded with mortality and corruption. He declares that he counts us just. We are covered with sins. He testifies that he is favorable and kind to us. Outward judgments threaten his wrath. What then is to be done? We must with closed eyes pass by ourselves and all things connected with us that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. Abraham says we, or excuse me, Calvin here is saying that we live in a world that is opposition, in opposition to what we, is true. We look at the world and we say, yes, there, we believe in immortality, but all around us, we don't see evidence of this. We see evidence of mortality and corruption. He says, you're considered just. And yet we look at ourselves and say, how can I be just and covered in my own sins? And it's not even that Abraham never doubted. He had evidence of his doubt, didn't he? His name was Ishmael. Sarah comes to Abraham and says, look, this is not going to happen. Here's my concubine. Let's, let's, let's take care of this. It's not that Abraham never doubted. They at times trusted in themselves more than they trusted in God. But Abraham avoided a deep-seated and permanent attitude of distrust. He maintained a single-minded trust in the fulfillment of God's promises. And as he persevered, he grew stronger. Isn't that how it always works? If you're going to go work out, what do you have to put your muscles through? Discomfort, aches and pains. But as you do this, what happens to your muscles? They get stronger and stronger. It's the same with our Christian walk. Temptations are hard to resist, aren't they? But as we resist temptations over and over again, it becomes easier and easier. Abraham was convinced that God would see it done, and this enabled his faith to grow. He was able to come the, overcome the obstacles that were put before him. 
And so his faith was counted to him as righteousness. How often do we act just like, or could we be tempted to act like God is not as big as he says he is? It's unrealistic to think that God will heal you. It's unrealistic to think that God can provide for you. It's unrealistic to think that God could save that person who is a wretched, horrible human being. Have we ever had thoughts like that? It's unrealistic that God is going to provide for your every need. That God can intervene and provide for you where you don't have. Oh no, we can't step out in faith and do this or that because we have to make sure that we've got all our ducks in a row first. Do we believe in a God who is big? Do we believe in a God who can look at a hundred-year-old man and woman and say, I will bring life from that womb? Or do we make God small? Our God is not small. He is a God who can indeed bring life from the barren. He is a God who can give life to those who are dead. He is a God who can make all things right. And this is the God who we trust in. This is the hope of the promise. And we are called to turn to him in faith. And we are to believe, even I I believe it was at the end of the psalm today. I know it was at the end of our reading today that all his promises are yes and amen. If God promises it, it will be done without question. Without question. And this leads us to our third and final point, the fulfillment of the promise. Paul says the words here, It was counted to him or credited to him or reckoned to him as righteousness were not said for Abraham's sake alone. They were said for his descendants as well. For all who have trusted upon the name of the Lord, you are Abraham's seed. And this is said for your sake as well. It's apart from works. It's apart from law. It's apart from sight. It's solely a work of God's grace. Christian, you are the one whose faith has been reckoned to you as righteousness. And now we in Christ get to experience its fullness. We share in the faith and the promise of Abraham. God the Father took the initiative And gave the the sinful people his son. He has reconciled us through Jesus Christ. There's a beautiful thing that says here. At the end, starting in 24. It will be counted to us who believe in him. Who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Who was delivered up for our trespasses. And raised for our justification. He was delivered up for our sins, for our trespasses, for our inability to keep the law. 
And he was raised up that we may be justified, that we may be made right with God. These two things here, as Paul ends this section in Romans, are the essence of salvation. You are a great sinner, but you have a great God who was delivered up for your sins so that you may be made right before God. Jesus has provided all that we need. He has freed us from the influence of sin. He has given us, God the Father has given us union with Christ. Oh, what a great hope that this is, that the fulfillment of the promise has come for us. Jesus Christ delivered up because we could not obey the law. He obeyed it perfectly. And he satisfied the wrath that was ours. But it's not just that he took the punishment. If Paul stopped with who was delivered up for our trespasses and just stopped there, it's not enough. He was also raised up for our justification. The resurrection is essential to salvation. It is through the resurrection that he gives life to the dead. He has conquered death and it no longer has dominion over his children. He has fulfilled the promise. The source of the promise is not us. It's not our works. It's not the things that we do. It is always God. God who has given us this promise. And so we have hope. We're not left to ourselves. He has made reconciliation for you. He has sent his son. He has delivered you from your sins. He has delivered you from death. It's what we're about to celebrate, isn't it? Jesus, broken, Jesus pierced for us. It's the wonderful reality of the season we're now entering, the Easter season as we look to the cross, as we look to the shed blood of the Lamb. But guess what? His promises don't end there. He has promised that he's coming again. That he will return and that he is preparing a place for us. I, our hymn of the month on Jordan Stormy Banks, I just love this hymn. I love the words to this hymn. Standing on the, the banks of the Jordan and looking into the promised land, that land of promise that was given, given to Abraham. It says, that's where our possession lies. Where God the Son forever reigns. There's no chilling winds, no poisonous breath, no sickness, sorrow, pain, or death. That's where we're bound. That's where we who are in Jesus Christ are bound. Do you know the certainty of that hope? Do you believe in the promises of God? 
His promises which do not fail. Rest. Rest in the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. Do not stumble, do not tarry, or do not, do not grow weary, I should say. Rest in him. The one who has saved you from death and has brought you into life. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that you have sent your son. Lord, would we ever rest? Would we ever stand on the promises of our God? Would they be our firm foundation? We pray in his holy name. Amen.